At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What does innovation sound like? It sounds like the luxury of being in the moment with your customer, client, or patient. It sounds like having the right information right when you need it. It sounds like being at your best for your customers and your business. Thanks to Highland's intelligent content solutions that improve digital processes, innovators everywhere are able to do their thing better, whatever that thing is. Now, who doesn't like the sound of that? Highland, for innovators everywhere, visit highland.com. I really think I understood what was going on until we were in Texas and I get, uh, the PR guy comes up to me and says, hey, can you jump on a phone call? Sure, he goes, it's with baseball tonight. Welcome into another episode of From Phenom to the Farm, Baseball America's interview series talking to former professional baseball players about their journey from amateur ball through the professional ranks. I'm your host, Kyle Banduho. Today's episode, we are talking to former big leaguer Chris Shelton. When you hear the name Chris Shelton, the first thing you might think of is the reason I had originally reached out to him. He's notable for having an absolutely incredible April of the 2006 season with the Tigers. There's actually a ton more to Chris's career than just that April of 2006. We talk about switching from being primarily a hockey player in high school to a baseball player, mashing his way through junior college and then the University of Utah, and then the low minors. Way before that 2006 season, Chris was picked first in the Rule 5 draft by the Tigers and hung on the roster in a year where he really didn't get to see the field much at all. He talks about how you can improve your game when essentially you're not planning on playing in the actual game that night. And yes, we do talk about that 2006 April and when a few homers turn into a hot streak. Episodes of From Phenom to the Farm drop every other Tuesday. If you enjoyed this one, subscribe wherever you get your podcast and go check out past interviews. We are coming up on 40 episodes now. And if you haven't yet, leave a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Also, make sure you're subscribed to BaseballAmerica.com and the BA Podcast feed for all amateur baseball and prospect news. Somehow it's August already. MILB season is kind of heading into that last month. The prospect hot sheet is still running out every week. All the post-draft coverage is up. And the BA podcast feed and future projection are still firing on a weekly basis. So subscribe to Baseball America. And with that, let's talk to Chris Shelton. All right, joining in for today's episode of From Phenom to the Farm, he was a 33rd round pick of the Pirates in the 2001 draft. Former big leaguer Chris Shelton. Chris, thanks so much for joining From Phenom to the Farm. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Of course, yeah, we've been have been really really looking forward to this. Um, want to get right into it. You know, you grew up in in Salt Lake City. I you know I, I have a geographical ignorance on this podcast. I grew up in Texas. Not really sure what baseball culture is like in a lot of other states. Uh, where did you know what what was baseball like for you growing up, and where did it rank in compared comparison to uh, hockey? Well, I think for a long time it was something that I did to be relatively honest it was something i did growing up to pass the time by in the summer to uh actually be keep myself busy for hockey season and it wasn't really until i kind of started getting into about high school ball i mean i played you know you play your local little leagues and and um travel ball didn't exist when i was at that time and 
So you play your local little leagues, do the all-star thing and, and just kind of go from there. And, you know, it was, you know, I, was, I knew I was good. I didn't, you know, I don't, I wouldn't say that I was the best player on the team by far. Um, like you hear from, you know, some of these other stories, but really baseball was something I did in the summer to pass the time to keep me busy till hockey came around. And you know, it wasn't until, like I said, my uh, freshman, sophomore year of high school where it started kind of changing for me, uh, where I, I started finding a different passion for baseball and, and started really kind of recognizing that I'm, you know, I'm pretty good at this. And um, again, it was still something I kind of just did, but you know, I, at that point I started realizing that I'm, I am pretty good and, Maybe I might need to focus on this just a little bit more. And something non-baseball related I need to ask about, about growing up in Salt Lake City. I kind of, I did some math. You were in high school, kind of around 96, 98. Were you a part of the small minority of Americans that possibly hated Michael Jordan? <laughs> um, yeah, it was, uh, you're right on there. That was uh, my senior year of high school. And, and I remember we had our yearbook signing little party and we had the games on and yeah, needless to say, I wasn't a huge Bulls fan that time of year. And uh, I still think that there's a whistle to be blown somewhere here anytime <laughs> soon. I don't know. I, I think uh, if so, anyone gets away with that, with that slight shove, it's MJ. But oh, yeah, there's nobody else. Of course. Of course. As far as is baseball and starting to put more focus onto it, when did you start to look at, uh, you know, playing it at the next level and how did your college choice come about in terms of he heading to junior college? It's really interesting because I had, um, I had a serious injury in hockey my sophomore year and, and they kind of really started, I don't want to stay. I wasn't, I just wasn't the same player uh, after that. I got really gun shy and, and that was part of my game when I played hockey is I was a big, tough defenseman, kind of get in your face and that type of deal. And after that injury, I I don't want to say I lost it, but I was a lot more nervous about it. And that's the one thing you can't do in hockey. And so I'd say it was my junior year. I started realizing I was okay. And uh, my senior year, to be honest with you, I really didn't have any offers going into the senior year. And I went to a baseball camp that was run by Rocky Mountain School of Baseball. It's a big uh, – they run a big travel ball league out here and they're, you know, it's a baseball school. They do camps and things like that. And I think it was the third or fourth year of the camp. And I just went down there and I was very fortunate. They had a lot of college coaches down there and, and I stood out and that's where things started really taking off. And so it was really the like six weeks before my senior year of baseball even started. And um, the coach from Salt Lake community college, he reached out to me and, asked what was going on. I said, Hey, I don't got any offers. I don't have anything going on. And they had me out for a visit. They did the whole thing. And it's like, I don't got anything else. So we just kind of said, let's do it and sign that letter of intent and off to junior college. I went, um, and it was, it was a good experience because it kind of freed me up for my senior year. I think I had a little bit of expectations to prove that I was good enough to play college baseball. Um, but you know, my senior year was, a little more relaxed than some of my buddies who 
didn't quite have that opportunity yet. And as a guy who had played multiple sports, probably hadn't gotten a ton of ABs, especially compared to like the, you know, you're coaching high school now, especially compared to, you know, the kids you're coaching now. When you get into junior college and it's all baseball all the time, was there was there an adjustment process or a kind of a loading period of, of playing that much baseball or was it pretty seamless? Uh, to be honest with you, it was pretty seamless. You know, I got there uh, in the fall and, you know, baseball here in Utah, it's, it's really weird. Um, you know, you play your spring season, you play from March until May. My high school team was never good enough to play into late May, so I'd always say the first of May. And then your summer ball, you know, kicks in the first of June and you play maybe up until the end of July. So there's a really small window for baseball out here. Um, you can play a lot longer, um, but that's just really the kind of when I was growing up, that was about it. But this the for me getting into it, I was all in. Um, I was like, dude, we got to play fall ball. This is so cool. Um, and the experience and and growth um you know you get into that first meeting and you're just like oh man where do i fit in on this team where am i you know and but it was it was seamless for me and to be honest with you one of my hockey coaches even reached out to me said hey what do you think you can come back and play for like a month and i really had no desire like it was kind of over and i went to a practice for hockey and like the passion was kind of gone i was kind of over it and off I went and baseball was there and it was my love and it was all in. And I mean, all in, like I couldn't get enough of it. Is there anything from your experience in junior college that you can point to as a direct benefit to later in your career playing at Utah or, or playing in the big leagues? Like what did you, what were you able to pull from those two years at, at JUCO? Um, that really the baseball's a grind. I think that was the biggest thing I think I got out of it. Um, you know, our facilities weren't great. We, uh, you know, at the, you know, right now, Salt Lake Community College has got an outstanding build and little stadium. They've got a great setup. When I played there, we had the, the school cut out some grass on a field for us and made a little infield. We had no backstop. We used the, you know, the clamshell for BP. That was our backstop during scrimmages. I mean, it was rough. Like we had one little cage in the, in the basketball arena. And it was up next to some bleachers. So if me being right-handed, if I pulled a ball, it would ricochet off of that and hit somebody, hit you. And you just, I just really learned to deal with things. Um, it was an opportunity to get better. And I think that was the biggest thing that I learned from there was a work ethic and, and how to work and how to get better at, at um, playing and that you have to do it on your own. I mean, the coaches are there, but really, if you want to do it, you've got to be the one to put the work in, ask for help, and not just expect somebody there to help you. That sounds a lot like uh, like minor league baseball. You said the word grind. I was going to ask, what is life in junior college like compared to life in MILB? Are there any similarities you could pull? Oh, yeah. Like, well, one, the bus rides. I can tell you that much, you know. The league that I was in when I was at Salt Lake Community College, we had teams from Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, which uh, was a 14-hour bus ride, to uh, down to St. George, Utah, which was a six-hour, or at the time was a five-hour bus ride. Um, you know, and, the, and everywhere kind of in between. You know, you had your two-hour trips and your four-hour trips and everywhere else. And 
you really learn to keep yourself busy and you know again i'm aging myself but cell phones weren't there and you had to throw the dvd slash vhs in and try and watch as many movies as you could and find a way to sleep on a bus and and that was i mean there's part of the grind just there between junior college ball and and the you know the minor leagues is sitting on a bus and uh, you know obviously it wasn't every day because we had class but it was bus rides and dealing with it and learning how to get through it and after those two years in junior college, you transfer over to the University of Utah, and the stats for your one year there say that there wasn't a big adjustment period. You're the you're the Mountain West Conference Player of the Year. That kind of speaks for itself. Was there was there though any any big adjustments that you had to make or kind of hurdles you had to clear to have that that kind of year at Utah transferring out of junior college? I think it was just I wouldn't say huge adjustments. You know, early. Early in that spring, the head coach at the time, um, his name was Tim Esme. He spent some time at Arizona State, got them to a College World Series, and is now managing with the White Sox in their minor league system. He he tried to change some things the way I hit, and we tried to get to a better spot, and it, and it didn't work for me. And we were both able to communicate that to one another, and he just kind of let me do my thing and helped me in a path that I I liked. Um, he didn't try and put me into a mold, um, uh, but he tried to build that, um, my baseball hitting style and that kind of thing. He tried to build with it instead of change it after that. And once I figured out that, you know, kind of figured out my niche, it was, it was just baseball to me. I'm just going to go out and compete. Um, there were some things that happened early in the year, you know, you go through your preseason games before you get into conference play and that didn't sit right with me. Um, I was playing. I felt like I could be doing more playing first, maybe catching, doing some other things. And I was DHing a lot. And, you know, there were some things that didn't sit right with me. So it just challenged me to prove, just prove myself. Hey, like to coach, you know, to coach Esme saying, Hey, like I'm your guy, like stop looking past it. And let me, let me, let me be the guy that can help this ball club. And you know, that sounds, and it was funny because it sounds a little uh, cocky going back at it, but I was just confident. I was just confident in the fact that I knew I could help the ball club when if he let me let me do more than just DH. And and it took a little bit, it took quite a bit, as a matter of fact. In fact, it took one time through conference play before he really started believing in how much I needed to be on the field as well, besides just DHing. And after that, my confidence just kept growing and growing and growing and and. So the, the the transition wasn't really hard. It was just getting another coach to believe in my in, in me, I think was the hardest part. Um, you know, you have two years there where a coach believes in you and you get in there and then you got to do it all over again. Um, and that was kind of the hardest part for me. Well, you led the team in OPS, hits, home runs, walks, total bases. It, things things went well. Uh, you found a way. There there was something going around social media the other day that was, uh, it was a picture of a bunch of the, the greatest metal bats ever. And you were in college kind of in a, in a great metal bat era. I just have to ask, do you remember what your, your weapon of choice was? Um, it was a Easton connection. Oh, was it the black one? Uh, I don't remember. I just remember it was 
funny because I always swung like when I was in junior college, I swung a 33 Eastern red line. Oh, I remember the red line. And everybody was giving me a hard time up at Utah that I was swinging a 33. Oh, you're too big. Go swing a 34. And I couldn't do it. And then I finally did swing a 34 and it was just fine. And, um, oh yeah, but it was an Eastern connection. I couldn't even remember the color to be honest with you. All I knew it was, there was me and one other player that only liked the leather on the bat. Everybody else wanted to take the leather off and tape it up. So it was real easy. Cause I mean, I think now in college, everybody has their own bat, but back then it wasn't everybody. Um, so we were, we were the only two that used that one bat and it was awesome. <laughs> so when did the, when did the draft come into play? Like what was draft day like for you? Cause you, you know, you get picked in the 33rd round. That's a selection that oftentimes signifies long odds and making it to the big leagues. What kind of, you know, what was draft day like and what tilted the scales and convinced you to sign? Well, to be honest with you, it was funny because um, the year before coming out of junior college, the angel scout at the time was really on me. And he did. He just did a solo workout for me, just to where he uh, there was me, and he asked me if I could get a couple buddies to come like shag and play catch with me, and just you know, and and nothing really came of that. So I didn't know what to expect. And then I went into college, and they start now. It's all done computerized, but they used to hand you these little three by five index cards with a bunch of questions on them, and you know, you fill them out, you know, your basic stuff, your name, you know, all that fun stuff, your chances of signing your ideal rounds and all that stuff. And and I actually went to an Angels workout in Anaheim at the time. And I thought for sure when I left there, I was going to be drafted by the Angels. And I was all set and excited, you know, because the Angels at the time, until things changed, they had two of their, they had two teams here in the state of Utah. And I was totally excited. And, and draft day comes and conversations I had and it was funny because my mom said hey come on let's go so we I was out doing housework the whole first day because she didn't want me to get my hopes up and sitting around the phone because the last conversation I had with the angels was it was going to be early um you know if it you know they you know 10 10 15 you know between 10 and 15 rounds somewhere in there and uh I was doing yard work with my mom and we had the phone outside, but there was no, no phone call, no phone call until later that night. Some clubs called and said, Hey, we'd like to draft you so-and-so and so-and-so. And there's about three clubs that did that. Um, the Cardinals and the angels were the ones that were really on it and nothing came about, nothing came about. So I just kind of called my coach Esme up at Utah and said, Hey, I think I'm coming back. You know, nothing's come this draft. And of course he was excited and, you know, the Pirates called me later that night and said, hey, and I and my scout's name was Ted Williams. and <laughs> Not that Ted Williams? Not that Ted Williams, but it was the weirdest thing. And um, Ted called me and said, hey, I've got good news and I've got bad news for you. I was like, oh, okay, what's the good news? Or you go, I said, what's the bad news? Because, well, it's not really bad news but you've been drafted by the Pittsburgh pirates in the 33rd round. And I said, like, my name's been called like, this is real because everybody else had been calling me for two days saying, Hey, we'd like to take you in this round. And nobody had took me. I goes, Oh no, you, your name's been called. You've been drafted. I said, okay, well then what's the good news? And he said, 
the pirates really want to get you into the system. They want to really get you out there and they're willing to really work, you know, to come up with a number and all this stuff. And, and really it just came down to it. And I didn't know how fast it was going to go. And Ted called me and said, Hey, can we meet at your house? And he goes, I think we got a decent offer. Sure. Come on over. So he came over, he gave me an offer. I threw a counter offer back at him and within 24 hours, they said yes. And I was like, all right, sign my contract. And he goes, okay, it'll be about three or four days before they tell you where you're going and what's going on. And that was a lie because it was 12 hours later. He's like, Hey, you'll be on a plane tomorrow. And I was like, Oh crap. <laughs> um, but that's kind of the story of getting drafted. Do you remember what you signed for? Uh, yeah, I signed for 25 grand and four semesters of school. And uh, how how long did that twenty five grand get you through your first couple of years in the minors? Um, I'll be honest with you, I was pretty frugal. It lasted a while. I mean, that's that's the way you got to be in in minor league baseball. But you get there, they send you out to to short season, or they they send you out to Williamsport. Yeah, um, and you you rake from the get go. Uh, offensively, at least you know Williamsport your first couple of years. Doesn't seem like offensively there's much of a challenge here for you. What was the biggest adjustment in getting into pro ball? Oh, defensively for sure. I was, I was a bad catcher. Like there, I'm not. There's no. I, I like I still sit here to this day and I tell people. I said the only reason I got drafted was because I could hit. Like it was like there's no rhyme or reason why I should have been drafted. Any other reason than I could hit. I was so bad defensively. Um, and I mean, I was, I was better at first, but even then I wasn't great, but catching wise, I mean, you know, that's what teams are looking for is a guy that can catch and hit. And I definitely was not a catcher. I was more of a stopper. Um, did you prefer one catcher first base? Uh, well, by about, Three, I'll be honest, by about three or four years into my career, I'm like, get me out of here. Get me at first base full time. Um, because, you know, I didn't catch a whole lot when I got to Williamsport. You know, unfortunately, the catcher in front of me, he broke his arm. So I got to catch a lot. And I mean, I caught a lot. I caught every night a lot. You know, there were, there were times where I caught, you know, probably eight, nine days in a row. And it's okay down there because you don't play day games you know everything in the minors that is played at night and because you got to get people in the seats and um and that really took a toll on me like it was it was hard because i had never caught eight nine days in a row you know the most you catch in college was three um and that was hard that was hard to learn how to deal with that how to take care of your body how to um, really do that. And yeah. How much of that work is outside the game? Like how much of, how much goes into being a professional catcher that is not, you know, from seven Oh five to 10 o'clock at night. Oh, geez. A lot. And to be honest with you, I don't know if I ever really got deep enough into, into really the nuts and bolts of catching, because by the time I got to the point where you could really learn the game, I was playing first most of the time. You know, I was an emergency catcher when I with my time in Detroit. If things got to that point, like I could go back there and catch. But like how to perform a game plan and how we're going to attack hitters and 
where this is like i don't even know like i'll be honest with you we didn't even get i never even got to that point i had an idea right because that's how you know the minor league pitching coaches would talk to you you know hey this is how you'd roughly do it but in the minors you don't guys move so much like it's hard to really set up a game plan for people and um so i don't i honestly didn't even really get into probably the most of it but i would say the biggest thing was it's just taking care of your body like i learned i needed to learn how to do that and and that was probably going to be the hardest part early on even with some defensive shortcomings did you think you had the ability to hit your way into the big leagues or were you concerned that the the defense was going to hold you back well being in pittsburgh i thought it was going to hold me back you know there's no dh in the national league so i really tried to expand um, by telling, you know, I told the Pirates at the time, hey, I can play first base. So I played first base. You know, I didn't play a ton in my first year, but the second year I played a ton of first base when I was in Hickory, North Carolina. Played a ton of first base. I'd catch some here and there, um, but I'd played a ton of first base. I'd DH, you know, occasionally. And um, But, yeah, that was, you know, that was one thing that I really wanted to focus on, at least was to give myself – the opportunity to play a couple positions because if you can play a couple positions and hit hey okay now we can do with that you know i even went into an instructional league my third year with the pirates i went to a third instructional league and i told them hey let me teach me to play third base and they tried just so that i had you know versatility that might get me somewhere so i think that that was something i really tried to do as a player was just give myself the best chance um and that was really all I could do was just keep grinding and keep trying to give myself a chance to show people that I can play. Give me a shot and, and I'll do something positive for you. Well, offensively, your first, both your, your first full season in low A and then your second full season in high A, you lead both leagues in OPS. I mean, you're, you know, you're, you're killing the ball in, in those leagues. You hit your way up to double A uh, in your, your second full season did you did you feel like you'd be a big leaguer at that point? Like when you when you have that much offensive success, because it wasn't like you just got you know you did good enough to get promoted. Like you you hit your way there, and you you know led you led leagues. At that point, did you feel like they're gonna find a spot for you, or is it still like this barrier of I, I got to get through this? You know, when I got to Double A, and I left High A ball, I got hot. You know, I got called up. Uh, end of July, I believe it was, when I got called up to double A. You know, I wasn't getting pitched to a lot in high A ball. I remember uh, the Diamondbacks' current manager, Tori Tori Lovello. He was managing uh, the Indians team at the time, and I remember him intentionally walking me in the first inning. And That's Bond's treatment. Yeah. I was kind of like, really? What? Come on, it's the minors. Let's go. Pitch to me. Um, And so I got to double A. I just thought that reputation was going to just continue, you know? Hey, you know, this guy's having a great year. Da, 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 da. I started double A out 0 for 20. And it was, you know, that, that was, it was hard, especially coming from high A ball where I was hitting close to 360 and getting walks and being just fine. And, and now all of a sudden I'm 0 for 20 and I'm struggling and, and, you know, there were some there were some days where something you know, that 0 for 20 wasn't awful. Like at the time going through it, you're like, this is the worst thing ever. You know, but, you know, I'd say that I hit plenty of balls hard and stuff. But 
I can tell you through that 0 for 20, I was like, oh man, they're going to send me back down. Maybe this isn't right. And I, you know, of course, minor league coaches, this is what's best about them. And, you know, they pull you aside and say, hey, look, the organization believes in you. Don't worry about it. You just go out and have fun. You just keep grinding. And it really took a lot of pressure off of me after that conversation. And I really hit a lot better in double A. And I didn't know where it was going to go. I knew it was time to make the Pirates to make a decision um, on whether I was going to be on the roster or not. And all I wanted to do was put some pressure on somebody to make a decision. And um, at that point, that was kind of really all I could do. And, you know, the, the rest, you know, after that, I didn't obviously get on the roster and stuff. But I just wanted to play well and see what happens. And, you know, obviously I was doing something right. Yeah, because after that year, you finish out in Double A. When you didn't make the Pirates forty man, when that when that kind of deadline passed, what was the lead up to the Rule Five draft like that December? Did you were you did you have a lot of anticipation for that? Had you talked to your agent about what what might come of that? Like when did you when did you start to hear some buzz? Because usually the first overall pick in the Rule Five draft that that's known before the draft. I'll be honest with you. I didn't know what to think. My agent was like, Hey, there's a chance that it's a pretty good chance of hearing your name running around this place in the rule five draft. He goes, but I don't know what's going on. You know, the pirates had protected me at triple a and, um, he, my agent at the time, he just was, you know, calling and saying, Hey, there's probably something going to go down. I don't know what, where, who, or what, you know, was really going to happen. And he called me, no, he probably called me seven, eight o'clock here in Salt Lake City and said, Hey, you were taken in the Rule Five draft number one by Detroit. And I was super excited. I'll be honest, I didn't know anything about the Detroit Tigers at the time. You know, and just Pittsburgh Pirates, Pittsburgh Pirates, that's all I was focusing on. I mean, I knew the history of the Tigers, I knew the franchise, I knew I, I wasn't that naive. And I was like, Man, how did the Tigers do this year? And what was so it like when you the, looked at that? I jumped on the internet and I said, holy crap, these guys lost 119 games. These guys are awful. And then I, and I'm like, what am I getting myself? And then I said, wait a second. These guys are rebuilding. This is going to be a chance for you to play. And not only just get a chance to be in the big leagues, but a chance to play. And I didn't know what to expect. Uh, my agent said, hey, they're going to have you come into spring training as one of the catchers. Um, you'll play some first, you'll do a little bit of third, um, because that had gotten out that I was working out at third and they'll try out over there as well. And, and, you know, at the time I was excited. They, they, uh, you know, Brandon Inge was there at the time and he was just trying to break his way into the big leagues and be consistent. I looked at him and I was like, you know, he was, had his struggles and I was like, man, they're pretty fair over there. They're okay with losing. I mean, no one's okay with losing, but um, like they're they're going to lose to get these guys experience to be better in the long run. And it's like, man, they're gonna give me a shot. I think I could I think I could do that. I think I could do what he's doing in the big leagues. And I remember we were out on the Tigers caravan. We were out doing the you know, the winter stuff and going through cities and trying to get people excited about Tigers baseball and it gets announced while we're out there that um we signed Pudge Rodriguez. And I said, well, there goes my chance to catch every day. Um, cause you, let's not going to beat honest. that guy out. 
not going to beat that guy out. And uh, so I didn't know what to expect from there. I just showed up to camp and said, well, here we go. Let's see what happens now. And did they give you any sort of odds on making the team, like any sort of guidance of you do this during spring training and we'll keep you on the roster? Nothing. I got absolutely nothing that I can remember. Maybe they did say something. I don't know. Um, I do when did remember you find was, out you were breaking camp. So uh, the last, the probably the day before we broke camp, um, I remember they brought in. Uh, I re- just remember, you know, you see people get called into the manager's office, and you see them pack their bags and off to minor league camp they go. Um, I saw a veteran get called in there, and he came out and started packing his bags, and I was like, "What crap?" And then they came and got me. I'm like, "Oh man." Really? All right. Well, I guess it's back to Pittsburgh I go. Where am I going to live? Where am I going to live in Erie or in Altoona? Right? And, you know, I remember Alan Trammell sat down and told me, congratulations, you've made the ball club. You're going to break with the club tomorrow, and we'll be on our plane to Toronto. I was like, okay. And I just was, like, so overwhelmed. I remember going, and this was before we even – like went out for a game, went out for a morning workout, and I went out, jumped on my phone. It was six thirty in the morning back home, probably even earlier than that. And I'm calling everybody, mom, dad, grandpa, and just waking everybody up. And I didn't care. And you know, it was it was an exciting experience. But I don't remember them telling me anything. If you do this, if you can do that, it just went in there, and I just played, and you know, it worked out. So you were worried about where you were going to live if you had to go back to Pittsburgh and then get sent back to Altoona and stuff. After you after you find out you're going to break camp, where what is the off the field process? You probably had a little more means to find out where you were going to live, but what is what is that like for a guy who is never you haven't lived in Detroit? This is your first season in the big leagues. How do you go about getting yourself situated? Well, man, that was that was tough because we actually started on the road in Toronto. So we went to Toronto first, uh, and then we came home. And the thing that's good about the big leagues is while you're there, they put you up in a hotel for seven days. So you've got a week to try and figure things out. You know, I I had a few friends help me out um, from back home that had any connections back in Detroit. And they got me in touch with this real estate agent. He's showing me houses and all this. And um, He's trying to get you you to put down roots. Yeah, he's got me in these northern Michigan, uh, you know, the the nicer areas up north of Detroit and wanting me to buy this house. And I'm like, dude, I'm a week in the big leagues. I don't have this type of money to do anything with this. And I actually ended up in a really good spot. And I, our bullpen catcher at the time, um, who was awesome, he goes, hey, how are things going? I know that the club's about to get you out. and said yeah and we were home for a week and then we went back on the road so i was able to stay in the team hotel for a week then we went on the road and we came home and i didn't have anywhere to go and uh he said hey and then luckily we came home on an off day he goes come out here stay with stay at the hotel that i stay at so i ended up living and i did it for all three years i was in detroit i lived west in west i lived about halfway between detroit and ann arbor in a little town called Livonia, Michigan. They had a town place suites by Marriott, and I lived in a hotel room for three years out there. Is there a 
did you get do you get maid service when you live there full time? Oh yeah. Oh, that's I'd a, get it that's a about, steal. Uh, we'd get it every. I think it was every other day. Obviously, I didn't need it every every other day, but um, yeah, it was. And you know, it was funny because you know my family would come out and they'd just stay there with me in their own rooms, and and it was really fun. You know, there was plenty of stuff to do around there, and I really liked it. Um, you know, I got myself a two-bedroom suite, so I felt like a little bit of an apartment instead of just a little studio. And, you know, it was really fun. And that was that was interesting to find your way to where to live. But once you do that, now it was just making a phone call and making sure they have a room for you. Well, then walk me through the year as a Rule 5 pick hanging on the roster. Because I guess the pros of being a Rule 5 pick is the team is is less inclined to to move you off the roster because then they either have to pay your you know pay your team to keep you or they your former team to keep you or they have to you know have to surrender send you back i guess the con would be you know you didn't get you didn't get a lot of action in in that 2004 year as a rule five pick what is how do you get better seeing almost no playing time like what what was that year like for you probably the first year ever playing baseball that you weren't a mainstay on your squad so offensively that was one of the toughest years of my life because I'd go grind in the cage. I'd go to BP and I actually learned a lot because, um, not so much about the swing, not so much about me as a hitter, not so much about anything physically. Um, you know, I just kept doing quality things that year was so beneficial to me because I knew I wasn't playing. Um, a lot. I could get the infield. I could get our infield coach out there, and I could take ground balls at two o'clock, and just take ground balls after ground ball after ground ball after ground ball, and basically drive myself into the ground taking ground balls, knowing I wasn't going to play that night. And I found myself getting better at first. I found myself being able to repeat things. I found myself getting better at my footwork. I found myself better at reading hops and making plays easier because of the way my feet would move to the ball. And I can tell you this much. If it wasn't for that year, I don't know what my development at first base would have been like. It was – I did a lot. And I remember coming in and just gassed and then going out to BP, and I would take even more ground balls. and I would take even more throws, and I would throw – you know, I'd turn more double plays. And, and, and it was just something that I did. Now, when 7 o'clock rolled around – it was time to watch. It was time to learn. It was time to observe and, and pick people's brains and things like that. But, you know, it was, it was a interesting year to say the least. Um, but like I said, it was a great learning opportunity and I took full advantage of it. I want to talk about picking people's brains because the three years you're with Detroit, there's, there's a lot of veteran bats like guys with a lot, the, those teams were heavy veteran regulars, guys with the, who were just taking a ton of big league APs. You mentioned Pudge, Magler Adonez is there, Craig Monroe, Marcus Thames, Rondell White, Carlos Guillen, just a, guys with a ton of experience. What is what is a meeting of the minds in the clubhouse like? How much hitting knowledge is is passed around? I, are you, you know, are most guys pretty forthcoming with how they're going about their at bats or how to, as a young guy 
who's trying to break into a lineup? How do you try to soak up that information? I think you you try and find what, uh, like for me, I wanted to be a guy that I had some power. I wanted to be a guy that drove in runs. Um, so my first couple of years, I, I talked to Rondell White. I hung out with Rondell White. I wanted to learn. I, I asked him questions. Like he really made things simple because, I mean, Rondell White drove in 90 plus runs for basically almost every year of his career. And it's like, man, I want to do that. I want to learn how to do that. I want to, I want that. And so I asked him, I said, what do you think about with a guy on third base with less than two outs? And he, and I was blown away by his next question. It wasn't even the answer. It was a question back to me. And he said, well, is the infield in? Is the infield back? Is it early in the game? Is it late in the game? Are we winning? Are we th-? I'm like, whoa, hold on, dude. Like, and he goes, well, no, this is all very, very important. I was like, wow. And he goes, early in the game with the infield back? If I can reach it and hit it to second baseman, I'll hit it and reach it to second baseman. I don't care if I'm out. They don't pay me to hit 300. They pay me to drive in 100. And I was like, well, that's one way to think about it, right? And he goes, if it's late in the game and we're down a run, I'm looking for something to hammer so I can take us up a run or do some damage with it and keep the inning going. And I was like, wow, I never even thought of it that way. Right? Like, that's just, I just was like, dude, I just want to know how you drive a run in. Like, I didn't think that it would be that in depth. And, you know, in 2007, you know, we brought Gary Sheffield over and I asked him, I mean, there's another guy that drove in a billion runs and I asked him and his thought process was completely different than Rondell's. I mean, it was the complete other end of the spectrum. And he goes, I don't, and I asked him, I said, Hey, what's your approach with, you know, a guy on third and less than two outs early in the game? Cause I just want to kill the third baseman. I was like, <laughs> uh, okay. You can see that in that swing. Yeah. And I said, well, what's it like late in the game with the runner at third? And let's say the infield's in. And he goes, I want to kill the third baseman. I was like, okay, <laughs> well, all right. But if you look at it, both ways work. You know, both guys were very successful for a long time in the game. And it's just how do you want to go about and how do you find what fits in your game was, I thought, the most important part. Because I'm I'm not afraid to sit here and say it. I don't create the bat speed. Gary Sheffield did. So I'm not going to kill the third baseman. Like, it's just not what I did. But I could put the ball and play and ground out the second. You know, I could do that. And... I think that that really even helped me even after my time in Detroit, it really helped me because I was like, cause I was always a guy that wanted to hit for high average and hit for high average and everything. And like, you know what? I'm just going to drive in this run right here. I'll just ground out to short. I don't care. And you know, it really, it really helped me become a better hitter with guys in scoring position later in my career for sure. Well, your 06 season gets all the attention. I think when people kind of look back in your career, but your 2005 season was was pretty good. Uh, you carry an 870 OPS. You, you know, you break through. You you play almost every day. What kind of you know? What made the difference in breaking through? How do you go from a Rule Five pick who is basically packing things up at seven o'clock versus a guy who's a contributor? Well, I think I'll be honest with you. Everything that I went through up to that point gave me the opportunity in 05 to have success. You know the the. the the catching every day in Williamsport where I was catching eight, nine, 10 days in a row, how to take care of my body, 
um, because now you're playing every day in the big leagues. You got to take care of your body. You got to be able to answer the bell. Um, so that I was, I had learned how to do that. Um, and the biggest thing, and I always tell people this, well, I didn't play a lot in 2004. What that did for me, confidence wise, preparedness wise, is what led me to have success right away when I got to the big leagues in 2005 to finally play every day. Um, I wasn't nervous anymore. I had been in almost all the stadiums that we were playing in. I'd played against all those players. I had seen them all pitch. Um, and sometimes that's for some people when they first get to the big leagues, it's getting over that aspect of it. Um, there's kind of a saying when I was coming up is it's great. You can play in triple a, but what do you do when they put the second deck on the stadium and, or, you know, in some places that put that third deck onto the ballpark and because they just get bigger, the stage gets bigger, the lights get brighter and everything up to that point really, really kind of put me in a position of calmness and belief in myself that, okay, you're finally here. Finally get to play every day. Now just go out and play. Prove to people that you can play. And, you know, and it's nice that you actually want to talk about that season because, like you said, everybody that wants to talk to me or talks to me about it, it's always, oh, in 2006. It's like, man, you you, you just scroll up on the page and look at 2005 and that I don't want to say what I did in 2006 to start the year off was out of the blue because it was out of the blue for me. But it wasn't like really a shock. I mean, I mean, I did a lot of good things there in 2005. Yeah, 2005, you actually, it, it, it accounts for over 50% of your career wins above replacements. It's a quality season. You, you know, you can be, become a starter. Is there, you finished that season. What in that off season after, you know, you're, you're a big leaguer, you're a starting big leaguer. How do you going into that off season? How do you build on that? What kind of leads into the spring of 2006? Does it, how does it change your mindset of how you go about things? Well, to be honest with you, I didn't know what to expect. Um, you know, I, I'd spent the whole season up there and, and, you know, a lot of your listeners will probably understand the name Carlos Pena at the time, you know, now after his success in Tampa and everything. But I kind of, me and Carlos kind of switched places there in 2005. He had made the club in 2005. He didn't start out really well. They sent him down and they called me up. Carlos was arbitration eligible that year and actually ended up getting another basic. He almost, he, if I remember right, he actually got a raise that year. And so I was like, my goodness, maybe I'm not going to be the everyday guy. Um, I didn't know what to expect. And then they fire Trammell and his staff, and then they bring in Jim Leland, and Jim brings in his, you know, and his staff comes in, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't, I don't know what, I don't know where I'm going to fit in, because the GM's still the same, the assistant GM was still the same, everybody was kind of still the same, except for the coaching staff, which is a good thing and a bad thing. It's a good thing because you get a clean state with the coaching staff and they have no they have no ties to anybody on the roster, which is a good thing. Bad thing is is now you gotta reprove yourself and it's kind of a fight between me and Carlos back through spring training. And it was an interesting spring for me. Um it was the first time on a baseball field where I felt like I was nervous. I didn't know what to expect. It's the first time in a baseball field where I felt anxiety. Like it was it got it actually got pretty bad. And I had to find a way to deal with that. And um, 
you know, I was able to overcome that. I found a way to deal with it, found a way to find peace when I felt it coming. And the biggest thing that I got through that was that somebody believed in me because I remember, and it happened early in the spring. And I don't know if it was something in Carlos's contract where he needed to have a decision or something, but I remember we were up in Tampa playing the Yankees and Gene Lamont walked over to me and, and came up and shook my hand and said, congratulations. I was like, on what? Like it was, it was middle of March. I mean, we're still two, three weeks away from opening day. And I'm like, gone what? And he goes, you basically just made the club. We just released Carlos Pena. And I was like, what? And that really brought a lot of peace to me. And and I don't want to say that that's what started off, why things started off so well in 06. Because, I mean, if I knew what was doing, I would have just kept doing that, right? But it brought a lot of peace to me. And it was it was nice. And and I think just my preparedness in that off season of still wanting to prove myself to everybody, I think really helped me to start that year off because I came into spring training ready to prove myself and basically game ready. I didn't have to, I didn't, wasn't going to be there to build up to opening day. I wanted to prove that I was ready to play right then and there. So let's talk about April 06. When does a few knocks turn into a hot streak? Like when were you like, I'm, I'm raking. And then when were you like, I'm historically raking? So it was funny because it was opening day in Kansas City. And um, I remember my first at bat, like I was so excited. I was so jacked up. And and I remember my first swing. I swung so hard. And I had to step out and say, okay, there it is. You got it out of the way. Calm down now. Just have a good at bat. Hit a line drive somewhere. And I remember I lined out to second base. I was running back to the dugout. I'm like, okay, you made contact. All right, it's a start, right? And then I get a little bleeder, and then I hit a home run, and then I hit another home run. And I was like, huh, three for five, nice opening day, right? And then we get the day off, and then we come back, and it kind of starts again. And we go from Kansas City, and we go to Texas, and we face R.A. Dickey, and he's learning to throw his knuckleball at the time, and you, know, you punished poor R.A. Dickey. Those, well, those home runs are still on YouTube. Well, I think we all punished him. I mean, that was the hard part. You know, Craig Monroe hit one. Marcus Thames hit one. I think Maglio hit one. I hit two. I mean, you know, it was it was rough. It was a rough night for him. But, you know, and then the next day, um, I hit another home run. And then the weirdest part was is somewhere in that stretch, I don't remember where it was, I hit two triples in a game. And I was like, whoa. At that point, I was like, okay, something weird's going on. Because, one, I don't hit triples. I'm not fast. And, two, I hit two in one game. Really? And I think I started to realize, I don't really think I understood what was going on until we were in Texas and uh, the PR guy comes up to me and says, hey, can you jump on a phone call? I'm all, sure. He goes, it's with baseball tonight. And at the time, that was like, baseball show in america it's like holy crap and you know they started spitting everything off and i was like oh maybe i'm doing something here but i didn't think anything of it right and just went on about my way and i think things got really weird when we got back home and we had opening day at home finally and our pr guy goes and he came up and talked to me about everything that was that was wanting to happen 
And I honestly told him, I said, Hey, I'm a little overwhelmed with this. He goes, you can say no. And so we finally had to come up with a plan of what we were going to do and what we weren't going to do because I just felt very overwhelmed. I wanted to try and do as much as I could, but I knew I didn't have time for everything. And I think at that point I started realizing, well, this is a fun ride. Keep riding it as long as you can. And, and it, it went pretty good for a while and, and it was fun. If you had say that April, you'd had a solid, you know, kept your, you know, kept a similar slash line or even, you know, what you did in 2006 and maybe had like five dingers got a base at a good clip, whatever. Do you think things might've panned out differently the rest of the year? So I always tell people this when it comes to, when it comes to that season and I will never regret anything that happened in that season. I don't have any regrets that came with that season or anything like that, but I truly believe had we been just another 500 club, I get to find my way through that season and not get sent back and not get that, you know, and don't have that. They give me that opportunity to continue to grow and really see, okay, is this our guy going forward? And, um, and I'm grateful for the fact that we went to the playoffs. I'm grateful for the fact that I got that experience. I'm grateful for the fact that I was at a world series and all of that. Um, so I don't regret anything that happened that way. Um, but I always have had this thought process that it would have been cool if we were 500 because I could have just kept playing and found my way into it and had found ways to make adjustments and maybe my career comes out different. Maybe it doesn't, maybe it's the same. I don't know. Right. But that opportunity was awesome and I wouldn't trade it for anything. What was the, cause the kind of, like you said, Detroit's contending, they trade for Sean Casey. You get sent down to Toledo at the end of July until September call-ups. What was the, what was the mental hurdle of that? You, the, you know, you were the, the toast of baseball a few months prior. You obviously had that hot April and you're coming off a really good season. What was, what was that month in Toledo like? And then what are the logistics of that, of you've spent the last, you know, three years at your, you know, your townhouse, your Marriott and, you know, having to get set up for this month in Toledo and also having to kind of recollect yourself and, and get yourself back on track. Well, I think, I think when it first happened, I was upset. Um, obviously, you know, you felt like things were going well. Um, and I actually had just come off of a pretty decent series. I remember we played Minnesota and we flew down to Tampa and I had just come off a pretty good series in, in, uh, Minnesota. So I didn't think anything of it. And when they, when they called me into, uh, the manager's, room to discuss what was going on. I honestly thought I was the one that had gotten traded um, for Sean. And then they said, Hey, what, what's going to happen is, is we're going to send you down to AAA." And mentally I was very um, frustrated. Um, but Jim Leland was very, he was very straightforward with me. And that is one thing that I appreciate about Jim Leland is he's one of the few people in this game of baseball that I played in for a long time that actually shot me pretty straight. I've had a lot of general managers and coaches and other things in, in baseball that just kind of sugarcoated or kind of told some easier ways to go about it. And I've always appreciated the fact that Jim Leland shot me straight. And he told me, he goes, look, you need to go down to AAA and you need to get your swing back. 
because I don't care what you hit. You need to start having better quality at bats and with no pressure. He goes, we're winning up here. We're in it. He goes, there's too much pressure up here right now for you to try to make these adjustments. Like, all right. He goes, you go down to AAA and you show me that your swing is back and that you're back having good at bats and you're putting it there. We'll call you right back up. And at the time I hear that, I'm still frustrated because I don't want to go back to AAA. So I was pretty frustrated for the first week or so. But then it kicked me, you know, that that conversation really jumped back up in my head and said, hey, okay, just come back here, get your swing right, get back. And, you know, it gave me a chance to build some confidence. And, and even then it wasn't great, but my at-bats felt better. I started building confidence and, you know, and, you know, I, and, you know, I, I got called back up in September and, and you know, we kind of went on from there, but it was, it was hard. It was not, it was not an easy thing to do. Um, but as long as I had, you know, a good quality mindset, I felt like that they were going to hold to their word and call me back up and, and they did. And, you know, it, you know, it, it, it proved to me that there are people that will honor what they actually say. And, and it actually was really nice. So you wrap that year, uh, you guys, you know, you guys fall in the world series, go back out 2007. What is that? All, you spent all of 2007 in AAA. What is different about the day-to-day work and life in, in AAA? Really, your first extended run and your your first you know big extended run in AAA. You had a little bit in 2005. Um, when you basically you you've conquered that level, like the you don't really have anything else to prove in AAA, and you're just trying to get back to the big leagues. How is that different versus when you're on your way up? So I'll be honest, 2007, I was, I was probably, I was probably the worst, worst mental version of myself. And I went to the ballpark every day and I got away from what made me good. I, uh, I was more focused on what was going up, what was going on up in the big leagues. And the fact that Sean Casey wasn't having a great year and now Carlos Guillen's playing more first base. And, and I was just bitter that they didn't call me up. I'm like, I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be here. I should be up there. I should be up there. And in reality, I'm looking at my numbers and, I shouldn't be up there. I'm not playing very well. But at the time when you're going through it, that's all you think about. Man, I got to get back up there. I should be up there. And it's saying, instead of saying, you need to take care of what's going on here, focus on you, focus on being better. And if you're doing the right things and you're putting up the right numbers, they will call you back up. And it just didn't happen for me. I, I was very bitter and I'm okay saying it now. At the time, it was hard to admit it. But after I stepped back and I really looked at my career, I was like, man, I was so bitter that year. I did not handle things right. I didn't. I was still professional. I still went to the ballpark. I still did everything I was supposed to do and do all that stuff. But I was bitter. I was not a happy camper. And after that season, I knew that I had to change if I wanted to get myself back to an opportunity to play in the big leagues and and so that year was a good learning experience for me. What was that change? Because you get traded to the Rangers that, that following December, December of 2007. The next year, you destroyed Oklahoma at, at um, AAA Oklahoma City. And then, you know, you get big league time with, with the Rangers. You're, you're back in the show. I'm sure the numbers aren't what you wanted. What, what, what was the adjustment? And 
what what kind of made the difference? What made you the player you were in Texas versus the player when things were going pretty well in Detroit? Was it was it were pitchers th- pitching you differently? Had they made adjustments? Was it something mechanical? What kind of went into the results not being what they were when things were going well? Well, I think um, from that season between 2007 and 2008, I made huge swing changes. I tried to simplify my swing and and through spring training with Texas, it wasn't great because, you know, it's my first live at bats with this new swing and trying to learn all of that. And not, not an excuse. It was just what it was and got to Oklahoma city and still kind of grinding through that, trying to figure out that new swing. So when I finally, so when I got called back up one, it was kind of a shock because I really wasn't playing a lot to start the year in Oklahoma city. I was really kind of surprised that I got called back, that I got called up. Um, I thought it was going to be a couple other guys for sure, but you know, I got called up and and it was weird because I got called up. Uh, I started the first day I was there, and I think I got two starts. And then Ron Washington calls me into the office and says, "Hey, we're just going to platoon with you and Frank Catalanato." And I was kind of like, "Oh, okay." I didn't know we were going to make that decision after two uh, two games, but okay. And I just never felt like I could get on a roll because if you're the righty in a platoon, you're, you're playing in less games. Yeah. And you know, I wasn't great at hitting left-handed pitching at the time anyways. Um, and I was always just sit there and say, man, give me a couple of bats against the right-hander, please. You know, just get me back, you know, and you know what happened. And there was a stretch where I was playing pretty good. and I just didn't feel like I could ever get on a roll. And, um, you know, so I went back to triple a and, and, uh, it wasn't this time when I got sent back, it, I mean, I was upset. Don't get me wrong. Um, but I was at peace with what was going on. You know, it really came back to, okay, I got sent down, you know, I'll go down and I'll play. And I really learned that if you just go play, you know, someone might trade for you. Somebody might get hurt. Some, you know, anything could happen down there. And after I got sent back down, that's when I really started kind of taking off. Um, down there, I'd got plenty of bats under my belt and my new swing and things felt right. And, and that's really kind of what took through the rest of my career. There was the fact that I just, I was at peace with where I was at, um, in my career and just knew that, Hey, would just play hard and play well. And people are going to like it or people aren't. And as long as you're happy and playing well, that's all that matters. When did you start thinking about hanging it up? You played, you know, you played 2009 mostly in AAA Tacoma with the Mariners. Have a good year in AAA, very little big league time. Do the do the free agency thing again, catch on with the Astros. When, you know, when do you decide that, you know, enough is kind of enough? So I was actually um when I was in Houston, I actually got hurt. I I hurt my knee end of Mayish and I was actually having a really good year. I had Kind of changed my approach um, because, you know, hitting 310, hitting 315 in AAA with 15, 18 homers and driving in 80, 90 runs wasn't obviously getting me to the big leagues anymore. Um, so I kind of changed my approach that offseason in 2010 to, okay, look, I'm just going to start trying to drive balls a little bit more. I don't want to say I want to try to hit homers, but instead of trying – I uh, the the hitting guy that I hit with back home, we kind of had a discussion. He goes, what if you hit 280 with 25? I mean, we may punch out a little bit more. We may not have those. But if you hit 280 with 25, 30, 
maybe that'll keep you, get you into the big leagues. You know, that'll get you back to the big leagues. And so we can, and, and that actually was starting to happen. You know, I started driving balls a lot more. I started driving in more runs and I was, I was hitting about 290 and I was like, okay, this is the plan. 280, 290, it's a lot more power. And then I got hurt. I came back and I just wasn't right. Um, and, you know, I missed nine weeks, you know, so it leaves me three weeks of the season. I didn't play very well coming back. I didn't have my legs underneath me. Um, with it being a knee injury and not being able to really work out, you know, I had put on weight because I wasn't able to do anything except sit around. And my body just wasn't functioning the same. And I didn't know how to tackle that off season because I didn't, I wanted to give my knee a break, but I knew I needed to be in shape. So I was trying to find ways around it. And I went to spring training with the Mets in 2011 and I just knew it wasn't right. Something wasn't right. Um, and I kept telling myself, this might be it. This might be it. This might be it. When they released me right before spring training ended, I was driving home and I was kind of at peace. I called my buddy that I've been coaching with up to this last little bit said, Hey, you got room on your staff? And he's all, yeah, come on. And I got home two days later, I'm coaching high school baseball and there it is. I don't know if I really ever decided to hang it up. I think it just got chosen for me. So you jump right into it. Oh yeah. There's no way I was, there's no way I was going to sit at home and just mull around. It would drive me nuts. So you think that helped having having that set plan for what's next after your playing career? Um, yeah, I I I wish it was at a, you know, I, I I mean I'm grateful for the fact that I get to be a coach and and you know get a chance to be part of these young men's lives. But ideally, I'd love to get into college baseball. It's something I've been trying to do for eleven years now. Just trying to get into college baseball, and it's hard. Um, so, you know, obviously I, I mean, I'm going to keep doing this at this level because I love coaching and I love being a part of it. And it's fun to me. I love seeing young men develop and get better and achieve that goal of playing college baseball. But ultimately I want to be in college baseball. I think that that's, would be so much fun. And, um, you know, hopefully I can keep telling myself to keep grinding like I was as a player and hopefully that day will come. Well, if you could go back and talk to your 21-year-old self, the one who signed out of Utah as a 33rd rounder, what, you know, if you got the chance to give a, a, a post-draft pep talk, what would, you know, what would you tell yourself as far as making your, your route a little easier? What kind of advice would you want to impart on yourself? Take notes. Keep a diary of what you do, what you did well, what you did bad. Um, I did that the last couple of years of my career, and it really changed my ability to be prepared, even at the AAA level. Um, you know, I learned this in Texas. They, they gave us, they gave us our own notebooks with stuff in it. And it really stuck to me and it really helped me. And I did it in Seattle the next year in Tacoma and I did it the next year in Round Rock. And it was funny because, you know, you come across the picture that you, you faced in 2008 and you didn't see him in 2009 because he was in, the international league. And then you see him in 2010 and it was like, Oh man, I think I remember this guy. You just go to your notes and you're like, Oh yeah, this guy's got this, this, and this. And you just go into the box and it's a different preparedness. Um, that would be the biggest thing I would tell myself. 
is write notes, write a journal, do something so that when you see a pitcher, you are prepared um, at least for what he is going to feature and how he got you out or how you had success off of him. I've got a quick rapid fire for you, and then I'll let you get out of here. Sounds good. Favorite minor league ballpark? Uh, oh, geez. Man, there's uh, probably because I spent the most time there. You know, it's not the greatest thing, but I love playing in Toledo. It was fun. Do you have a least favorite minor league ballpark? Um, the old Columbus Clippers ballpark. That place was awful. Best pitcher you ever faced? Oh, Roy Halladay. Your first big league AB? Uh, Roy Halladay. Yeah, that's that, that's what I was. I, yeah. I did the did the research. I just yeah, didn't get a chance to was, ask you about what did. How do you collect yourself for your the nerves of your first big league AB when you have to face Roy Halladay? Well, it wasn't. It was. It was weird because Kirk Gibson came and told me the story about how he got his first AB, and he basically told me the exact same thing. He said Sparky Anderson came up to him and said, "Hey, you know, see this pitcher out here? He's pretty good, huh?" So, yeah, he goes, well, you'll get to see how good he is because you're up third. And Gibby was like, what? So he was up third. And Gibby came down and goes, Doc's on Doc's on pretty good today. I think he was throwing like a two-hit shutout in like to the seventh. Just, you know, rare Doc form. So he's pretty good today, isn't he? I said, yeah. And he goes, well, you get to see how good because you're up third. And I was like, oh, crap. At least he did it with two outs, so I at least had some time to think about it while we were playing defense. Um, but it was, it was interesting. And I, I don't, I, I remember I broke my bat. I have the bat hanging up in my hallway here um, at home. I broke my bat and I swear I barreled that ball up. I swear I did, but I probably couldn't feel anything. So I wouldn't know any different. <laughs> that's, that's what Roy Halliday could do to you. Yeah. Uh, do you have a nightmare minor league bus ride story? <laughs> I got a lot of them. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, do you want the 14 hour trip from uh, New Jersey back to North Carolina to play that night? Or do you want the bus trip from Ottawa back to Toledo where we didn't go? We rode can we stayed in Canada all the way up until the border crossing in Detroit and we had no cell phone service. Oof. Yeah. We, I mean, I think that was nine hours and then we had one more. We went from Toledo to Scranton, Wilkes-Barre eight and a half hours after a night game, got into Scranton about six in the morning, six thirty in the morning to play a four thirty start on a Roger Clemens rehab start. Oh, so you, you had to face Clemens on short, short sleep, short sleep with shadows at like a five o'clock start. Yeah. It was awesome. That's a nightmare zone. Yeah. Uh, so there, there's the old adage of like, oh, I'd like to have a beer with that guy or something. Jim Leland, I would like to share a cigarette with Jim Leland at some point in my life. Well, do you have a good Jim Leland story? Oh, man, I got so many Jim Leland stories. That guy's awesome. Um, and I think really the biggest thing that he is one of the funniest people I've ever been around. Um, I remember in spring training, we were out there stretching and and – just he'd just go around and he'd talk to everybody and he'd tell everybody jokes and you know he was pretty good at hiding hiding his smoking it from the from the media while we were out doing that i remember one time and he kind of did it every single day just to different people but he would come up and he'd take a smoke and 
take a big deep puff off of it and he'd walk up to somebody and lean over like he was going to tell you something and just blow it all in your face and then start telling you a joke. <laughs> um, and, but that's, you know, that's just what he did. He just kind of, and you know, there are stories, you know, I could tell you all sorts of stories watching him, but he always found a way to push the right button at the right time with that team in 2006. Like it was, I mean, Look at the success he had in Detroit. I mean, that guy had such great success there, but that team was just different in 2006. We weren't supposed to do anything, you know. We were supposed to just keep rebuilding, and and he found a way to push buttons with that team and push the right buttons all the time. He knew when to put your arm around you, give you a hug, and tell you it's going to be okay, and he could do that to every individual, and he knew when to – get into us as a team and let us know that we're better than the way we're playing. He was just awesome. That is as good a note as I can think of to end this on. Chris Shelton, thank you so much for joining from Phenom to the Farm. Yeah, no problem. It was my pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And that's it for today's episode of From Phenom to the Farm. Huge thanks to Chris Shelton for taking the time talking about his career. If you enjoyed the episode, please remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Rate, leave a review, go back, check out past episodes. New episodes of From Phenom to the Farm drop every other Tuesday. Tune in next Tuesday for a great interview with former Arizona State assistant coach and current ESPN college baseball broadcaster Mike Rooney. Really fun one. Also make sure to subscribe to BaseballAmerica.com for all amateur baseball and prospect news. And we'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for listening. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Super Light Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So what can you do in a super light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com. Code SUPER24.